Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. I'm finally back to Spirit in Action after my three-plus weeks in Kenya with the Friendly Folk Dancers, and the trip serves as a kind of stark lead-in to today's topic. Not that the trip was bad, but that it highlights the tremendous differences between life in the USA and day-to-day life in Kenya. For one thing, religion, and that's specifically evangelical Christian religion, is far more pervasive and in-your-face in Kenya than it is in the USA. It's on signs everywhere, and related phrases are on everyone's tongues. While I was doing the friendly folk dancer thing, and if you don't know what that is, just come to the nordenspiritradio.org website and search for folk dance or Cuba to listen to an interview with friendly folk dancers that I did when we traveled to Cuba back in 2010, before the current thaw between the USA and Cuba. So, while I was traveling with the FFD in Kenya, I had lots of contact with Pentecostals, Evangelical Christians of all sorts, including with many with attitudes and theologies that overlap with folks in the USA that you and I might consider to be those other folks, you know, not of our camp. It was good emotional and spiritual exercise for me, widening my empathy, listening, as we Quakers say, beyond the words, and I made many positive connections. Being abroad and so warmly and generously welcomed by virtually every Kenyan I met there made it easier to bridge the gap between some of our beliefs and maybe values. One more note about my contact with Kenyans. I asked around and spoke to a number of Kenyans about what they and their friends think of the election of Donald Trump, and I could not find a single Kenyan who could understand how the people of the USA could have made such a choice. And this was true no matter where the Kenyan might be on the range of religious and theological belief. Just keep that in mind when you're tempted to think that someone with a different religious or theological outlook than yours must be a supporter of the opposition. Which brings me to today's topic. I ran into a quote that I thought was particularly good and needed in the USA right now. A Quaker, Colin Saxon, said, We need to be bilingual. We need to learn how to speak NPR and NASCAR. And when I posted that quote on Facebook, today's guest, J.E. McNeil, commented, Some of us grew up speaking both languages. I've had J.E. on Spirit in Action before. 
know that she has a salty, less filtered way of expressing herself, backed up by solid thought and facts. And so I invited her here today to help us all think about the consequences of the cultural divide and to explore ways that we might find common ground and expression to the betterment of our country and our individual lives. Jay McNeil is a Washington-based attorney and served for a number of years as the executive director of the Center on Conscience and War, which serves conscientious objectors and others with scruples against participation in the military and war. She also wrote a book review for Friends Journal, which I'll link on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website, which I'm sure is relevant to today's topic. Let's go now to the phone to speak with J.E. McNeil in Washington, D.C. J.E., welcome back for the umpteenth time to Spirit in Action. Well, thank you for having me. I'm always amazed you're still interested to hear what I have to say. (laughs) Oh, you know how much I love your salty comments and insights. And I want to point out to folks back in, what was it, 2004 or something like that, we had you here in Eau Claire to do a draft counseling training workshop. In the course of that, you and I went to a radio station. We put out press releases and one radio station wanted to have you on for some comments. Relate what happened. Well, it was a talk show, and somebody phoned in, and I had talked about conscience's rejection to war and why war is wrong, and this guy phones in, call him John, for lack of a better name, and and John says, so, you know, conscientious objectors are cowards. I want to beat you up. I want to shoot you. And I said, well, you know, if it makes you feel big and brave to threaten a 55-year-old woman. The DJ said, John, John, we seem to have been disconnected, but if you want to meet with Miss McNeil tonight, she'll be at <laughs> such and such place at 7 o'clock. And then the radio program was over, and he signed off. And I went out in the hall, and, and all the radio execs were running up and down the hall going, that was real radio, that was real radio. And somebody finally turned to me and said, so what are you going to do if he shows up tonight at your talk? And I said, well, I'm going to look him straight in the eye. And then I'm going to say, call 911, because I'm not an idiot. (laughs) Well, that isn't the reaction that most, I would say, liberals would give, the people who are generally advocating for draft resistance and that kind of thing. I sense that your take on this is different than maybe the mainline Quaker, if you will, mainline liberal Quaker. Well, I've often felt that there was a missing gap between various beliefs that I sort of fall into. You know, all my leftist friends think I'm a moderate, and all my moderate and liberal friends think I'm a leftist, and I don't think I'm anything like that. I try to look at each individual issue and focus on the logic of the situation. And when I look at war, Originally, I was just against the war in Vietnam because the war in Vietnam was pretty easily logically wrong. And actually, the story of when I came to that conclusion was when I was in junior high and my history teacher had us do a debate and I was given the side that we shouldn't be in Vietnam. And this was in Texas and in the 60s and, and therefore everybody knew I had the wrong side. But I have a very tactile memory of just about sitting down and going, bang, We shouldn't be in Vietnam. Now, sort of, I always viewed that as my turning point, that I did it step by step, accepting nobody's word but my own, nobody else's logic but my own, but taking my time figuring it out. And eventually got to the point where when I was much older, 
I was reading a coming-of-age book that was set in Europe around World War One, and it was an extremely well-written book, but it talked about the problems with the Serbs and the Croatians. And this was around the Balkans. And I went, wait a minute. Here we are almost 100 years later, and we're fighting the same fight. Why is that? Why are we still having a fight between the Serbs and the Croatians? And it's because all the time when there wasn't a fight between them, it was enforced by power, it was forced by violence. And there was never an opportunity to uh, really learn to live together because when peace is enforced by violence and war, it's never really peace. It's only uh, a truce. And that was when I finally concluded that war was not only morally wrong, which I had thought for a while by that point, but that it just didn't even really make much sense most of the time. So generally, it was a case of where a parent who, I'm sure you've met these parents who, you know, let their kids run crazy. I know when my son was about four, one of the little boys in his class cut his shirt with a pair of scissors, and I called up the mother, and the mother was like, oh, the boys, the boys, a phrase I, I loathe and despise. The fact is, is that if, if you let the little kids run amok and you don't teach them and train them, then, yeah, later when they're teenagers, they're going to really run amok because they believe they have an inherent right to run amok. And then you get parents saying, oh, well, I had to send him to a military school because he needed the discipline. Well, you know, why don't you give him discipline when he's two instead of waiting until he's 14? And that's my attitude about war is that we wait until the, the situation is so drastic and dire, like in Syria, where we wait it until it was so drastic and dire. And then we go in and we say, well, we have to go in and blow people up because what else can we do? And people can tell from your accent that you're not from Wisconsin. (laughs) You're not from Wisconsin. (laughs) You grew up, I think, around Houston, Texas. And I was wondering about your parental influence. Were they left, right, middle? What were they? Well, it was sort of an odd blue-collar family. Daddy was a machinist and mother was a teacher. Daddy was an extremely well-read man, even though he had never gone to college because he just didn't have the money. And a lot of his buddies were these keep them barefoot and pregnant in this and that kind of guys. But both of my parents were very clear about the rights of people. Even though my daddy sounded like a racist, he completely supported the African-Americans and Hispanics who came to work at the refinery where he was. And in fact, when he retired, instead of a bunch of old white guys at his retirement party, everybody was at his retirement party the blacks, the Hispanics, the women, everybody, you know, was a friend of my daddy's because he looked at each person as an individual. And my mother was very much the same as a teacher. She was one of the best liked teachers at the high school where she taught by both the really smart kind of, well, I wouldn't say any of us were upper class, but (laughs) middle class white kids and and the really smart Hispanic and black kids, and the not-so-smart Hispanic, black, and white kids, because she was very fair. And I think all of those things influenced who I was, the connection with unions, the connection with believing that you looked at each person individually is really a lot of, of how I try to live my life. And it was a different form of the Quaker belief that there's that a God in everyone. You know, my daddy would say horrible, racist things about groups of people but every person he ever met was an exception. Well, you responded to a Facebook post that I put up. It's a quote from Quaker Colin Saxton, who said, we need to be bilingual. We need to learn to speak NPR and NASCAR. And you responded that you already did. 
And I feel like I do too, that I actually straddle the working class and the middle class. I'm the only one out of the 12 kids in my family to go to college, which tells you why my sister calls me the white sheep of the family. There's a certain cultural breadth that we occupy that I think it predisposes us to be able to speak the two languages. Yeah, I, I grew up with, a, like I said, the blue-collar background, and your average Quaker, I find, does not have a blue-collar background. There's some, but not many. There's some posers, but not many with an actual blue-collar background. A lot of sort of elitist farmer types. Yeah, and my experience is similar. Now, for so many years, you were the director of Center on Conscience and War, which, again, people would see as the domain of the liberal or the leftist. Was that your experience? Oh, no, no. I I reject that completely. (laughs) Sorry. My largest donor was a born-again conservative Republican. Of course, my second largest donor was an atheist communist. (laughs) A huge number of the uh, supporters of the center were NRA members. Now, uh, people like to... And I actually think this is one of the big problems we have, both on the left, it's one of the big successes on the right, is that we like to describe things in these sort of black and white visions that people who oppose participation in war are liberal or left. And that is so not true. I can't tell you how many Anne Rand, excuse me while I go throw up, uh, conscience objectors I supported getting a discharge from the military, Anne Rand is by no stretch of the imagination liberal or left. In fact, Anne Rand and the Koch brothers are kissing cousins. The example you just gave is why I have you here today to talk about speaking both NPR and NASCAR and the need to somehow bridge the gap. I mean, we've got this breakdown of communication. There's the people who are viewed as Hillary's supporters over here and Donald Trump supporters and both think the other ones reside in hell or should. What's your take on the divide? I honestly think that a lot of the supporters of Hillary know how to say this. Well, there are two points I want to make. First, I, I read as one of the responses to your thing was that, well, you can you can want to feed your family and, and care about the people being bombed in Syria, implying that if you cared about both, then obviously you wouldn't support Trump. But the reality is, is there are a lot of people who care about feeding their family and the bombing of people in Syria who do, in fact, support Trump. The people I talk to among my liberal and left friends have this vision of who the Trump supporters are that just does not equate with reality. It is this black and white vision. And some of them some of them are, are like bravely saying, I want to hear why they want to reject the marginalized, which starts out with a erroneous premise, you see. You know, even though they're trying to be open minded, they're already started out with a closed mind because they're assuming they know what the Trump people are doing. They know that the Trump people want to reject the marginalized. That's actually not true with most of the Trump people that I've talked to. There are the complete and utter racist Nazi crazies, but there are also a lot of people who just see themselves as having been marginalized for a long time. You go to rural America, the Midwest primarily, or even small town America, I'm not talking about the northeastern seaboard where, you know, the affluent, well-educated go live in a, in a house outside of Amherst and think of themselves as rural. 
are the ones that live in the Palisades in California that think of themselves as rural. I'm talking about the overall people, the people who for generations have had farmland and now no longer can afford to maintain a family farm. And so they get up, you know, work in the morning and drive into the nearest town, which is probably 50 miles away, and work and then come back and, and work their farm. Actually, they get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, work on the farm, and then drive into the town and then drive back and work on their farm. And they work the farm on the weekends. You go to the small towns of America, which used to have, you know, quirky bookstores and restaurants and, and quirky little hardware stores. And now all you can find are uh, McDonald's and Taco Bells and Walmarts. And the jobs are gone. I mean, there's some jobs if you want to work underpaid in these for these companies. But the town, the town itself has been gutted. You could blindfold me and drop me into a small town today, and I couldn't tell you what town it was. Whereas 30 years ago, you could look at the town and figure out, oh, well, they've got this, they've got that. I, I remember once going into an independent bookstore years ago and finding poetry books by uh, Staunton, who was a conscientious director and, uh, and a professor and wrote these really lovely poems about conscientious objection. I stumbled across them in this bookstore in a small town. You can't do that anymore. There aren't bookstores in small towns. They're gutted. And so the people who live in those situations... It's not that they don't want to help the marginalized. It's that they see themselves as the marginalized. And we often have rejected that image. We have decided that the marginalized are people of color, which they are. We've decided they're urban poor, which they are. For whatever reason, which I don't understand, we reject the concept that the rural poor are marginalized. And that's that's why we can't quite grasp what happened is we're too busy being sure, you know, we won't, I want to listen to you just so long enough that I can tell you that you're wrong, 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 and I'm right, right, right. And that's not going to get us anywhere. Of course, one of the factors that's edged in so prominently over the last 10, 15 years, uh, some people call it faux news. It's certainly, you know, you've got a certain number of people who listen to Fox News, some certain people who listen to NPR, end of things. And some people who won't listen to any of them get their news, of course. Right, let's not internet. leave out democracy now. Come on. Democracy now. That's one liberal end of the poll. What's your thought about that landscape and how it influences the divide between us? Well, the phone news is really only part of it. I mean, part of it is just biased news. I mean, if your news story is constantly one story, regardless of what that story is, regardless if it's a story about... Hillary's emails or it's the story about Donald Trump's sexual assaults. If that's your only story, the people who listen to you, that's what they're going to be thinking about. And it happens really, quite honestly, it's getting increasingly difficult to find unbiased news. I, I listen to the BBC as much as I listen to any American news. But beyond the news, which is siloed, you know, this is a huge difference. Up until I don't know when, what, was it the 70s, the late 70s, the early 80s? Up until then, everybody listened to the same news. And so even if you disagreed politically, you were starting from the same point. Now we're listening to different news. And it's not just the news, it's our entertainment. There was a fascinating, I think the Wall Street Journal was the one who did it, was a fascinating graph of where in America different television shows were watched. You know, like Duck Dynasty versus Dancing with the Stars. 
So we're watching different entertainment. We go on the internet and Google, and if we don't use Google, whatever search engine we use, screens what we watch. True story, I bought some bras on the internet, and I, every time I go on the internet now, I get an ad for bras. I mean, this was like four years ago. <laughs> but they're still offering me bras. It decides what you believe. Facebook, Google, not just Facebook. I mean, people complain about Facebook, but Google does. So when you do a search on Google, if I did a, a search on Donald Trump on Google, I wouldn't get the ones saying Donald Trump is great. I'd get the ones that say Donald Trump sucks because Google's decided I'm a leftist or liberal. It's a little more confused in some area, other areas like Israel and Palestine for me. It hasn't quite decided what I believe there. You know, there are other areas it hasn't quite decided what I believe. But it's that siloing of America that is what's been so dangerous. And it's actually, you know, as you know, some years ago, I tried to create a advocacy organization that was nonpartisan because I was concerned about the siloing of America. And although my advocacy organization didn't make it, I'm still I still have that concern that we we no longer see the same television shows, news, even you know our internet ads are screened for us politically. And as long as we allow that to happen we are going to not be able to really understand our neighbors. Way back in 1976, during the presidential campaign, I heard a speech by Peter Kameho, was working for the, he was running as presidential candidate for the Socialist Workers' Party. And he gave some wonderful examples of that as to busing for integration that was happening at that time. And he just talked about how when you get a selected subset of the news about it, how it influences your opinion one way or another. And he talked about an area in Boston, which was essentially a, a small black neighborhood all surrounded by white. And all along, they had been bused to black schools. And so when integration happened, they got on buses that went to kind of neighborhood schools. And yet, on the news, you saw these blacks getting off this bus going to a white school and saying, isn't it horrible what busing is doing? And it's like, well, busing is meaning they don't have to go across town. You know, they're integrated now. And that's just one side of it. Or you can see the other side, which only points out the negative stuff. What's your reaction to democracy now? Well, I mean, there are a lot of really good stories on it, but I think it's, I honestly think it's pretty biased from the left point of view. I know that's going to get me hate mail. <laughs> Will you give them your address so they can come and, you know, hug you or something that leftists do? Oh, God. I think I'd rather be beaten. No, I just, it's again, it isn't that it's completely erroneous. It's that it's, it's looking through a particular lens. I mean, I actually have a sister or brother-in-law and a huge number of friends who are all journalists. These are all people who used to work for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. There are old-style journalists who believe, honestly believe, that journalism can be unbiased. I've never believed that. I think you always screen what you write about and your, what you choose to write about or how you write about it according to some of your biases. Now, you can make an attempt to be unbiased, in which case you will probably be less biased. But the fact that Walter Cronkite cried when Dan Rather got beaten up at the Democratic Convention tells you that he wasn't sitting there completely detached from the situation. And, and you never are. You're a human being, and you're always going to have some kind of bias filtering what you're doing. 
And the difference between journalism 10, 15, 20 years ago and journalism now is there are fewer and fewer news outlets which still try to maintain at least attempt to avoid that kind of bias in their reporting. It's not like it never existed before. It's just that it's now the that I'm doing it from my point of view reporting is the norm rather than the attempting to do it from a, a neutral point of view. And that's part of the problem. It's part of the siloing of America. I imagine people have always siloed themselves to some degree. You know, you pick friends who have comfortable opinions, but there's a authors I interviewed of something called American Grace, which was how religion divides and unites us. And they said back in the 1950s, Democrats and Republicans sat by each other in church. As of the 2000s, and we're very divided that, in fact, we hang in very different groups. And so churches are, you know, 98% Republican or 98% Democrat leaning or left-right, however you want to draw that division. That that is something actually has changed over the last 50 years. And I only think our social media has made it easier. You talked about already, uh, people have talked about how Facebook does that, but YouTube does it. Depending on which video I've seen, it suggests other ones that are related to that and pushes me down the single rabbit hole. So if you look at my mix that they suggest for me on YouTube, you'll find kind of a surprising mix. Okay, so here's a football tricks and wins thing, and I'm not particularly into sports at all. Yet, you know, I looked at some of those. I thought that was interesting. And here's something, a speech by Donald Trump, and here's one by Obama. And I, I look across the spectrum. Which is a hard thing to do. Yeah. Back in 2004, when the swift boat controversy was plaguing John Kerry, I said, well, I should find out what the accusation is from that side. And so I, there was a book about swift, by the swift boaters alleging what the thing is. So I went to a, a conservative site and downloaded the first chapter of the book. They had an offer. And so I downloaded it and read it. I think that made me a fringe liberal because I wanted to take in the information. What's the accusation? I want the facts. I had someone yesterday who at work, someone who told me that she was talking about the the horrible things that John Kerry said and that Netanyahu came out and fairly lambasted Kerry because he had said... Oh, uh, you mean ridic- the guy who's up on corruption charges? <laughs> yeah, right. Netanyahu. Okay, <laughs> yes, I, I really want to hear what he has to say. So I said, well, actually, I didn't hear Kerry's speech. So last night I got down and there's an over an hour long speech by Kerry. I want to hear firsthand what he said. And then I went into Netanyahu's speech. And what did he say? And I looked for where information was shared or fact where opinion was substituted. And I make my decision. But I think that makes me a little bit strange because I want to listen to both sides. And as you pointed out in that comment on Facebook, some people said, it's useless to listen to them. They're idiots, right? Yeah, basically. Tragically so. But the other element that's involved in this that we haven't talked about is how successful the Koch brothers, because I do trace it back to them, have been at framing the conversation. You know, I will say that both sides have been bad about not really listening to each other and about painting their picture and not looking at any other picture. But you know who won is the right-wing extremists. The number of people I talked to who said, well, you know, Hillary probably did do something wrong with the uh, emails. Well, 
if she did, then so did Colin Powell. But nobody mentions him having done the same thing with his emails, having them on a private server. Nobody brings that up. And the comment about the woman who said she laughed at me for claiming I was right. Well, no, she was in open court. She was defending a defendant, which is her job as an attorney. You know, you may not like it, but I believe it's the last bastion of true conservatism defending the Constitution when you defend people who've been accused of a crime. And if she laughed in court, it may have been about any number of things. You know, she may have been in a conversation on the side, but this woman took it as a, a laughing at her. And so everybody goes, oh, evil. Well, except, you know, criminal trial attorneys actually provide a useful function in life, which is that they make sure the government, or they try to make sure the government really does have a basis upon which they charge people who go to jail. Are they successful all the time? No, but, uh, you know... The minute we start saying, no, you can't represent particular people because we've already decided they're bad, you know, the justice system completely fails. Not that it's in great shape now, but there's still attorneys out there doing what they need to do as defense attorneys. I have to uh, give a caveat here. My husband was a criminal trial attorney, and I was extremely proud of him. We'll get back to more of your experiences with legal system and the future of our country. But, folks, we are speaking to J.E. McNeil. She is a lawyer, amongst other things, and I think a pursuer of truth and the true American way, as I would put it. We're going to talk more to her, but first I want to remind you that you are listening to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, you find us at northernspiritradio.org with 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You can find comments about our guests and connections to them. Please do post a comment when you visit. There's also a place to donate, and that's how this full-time work is supported. So please click donate when you visit. Even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio, though, is to support your local radio station. It's so important to have community radio out there providing an alternative slice of news, particularly in view of what we're talking about today, the siloization of people's exposure to the left and the right and the facts. And so please start by supporting them. And if you have some shekels left over, please support Northern Spirit Radio. Again, J.E. McNeil is here for a number of years, and you have to tell me how long again it is, J.E. J.E. McNeil was the head of the executive director of the Center on Conscience and War. She lives in Washington, D.C., is a lawyer herself, and one of the primary experts, I guess you'd say, about draft law. And so she's counseled people left and right and all along the spectrum, other spectra. So she's got the exposure to many points of view. You're showing your age by calling it draft law. Registration is such a minor part of it. It's about the people who join the military and have a change of heart, which is what the center basically deals with. Is primarily deals with is not draft law. Well, since we do have a, a volunteer army, I guess that's more relevant. There still is a draft law, draft registration law. At, at one point, back when you were doing the training here in 2004, it was very close to worrying about the draft being actually activated. That's kind of receded in our past. By the way, are we still safe from that? Oh, if we haven't had a draft now, we're not going to have a draft. I don't believe there will be a draft ever again in the future. And I haven't thought that for quite a while now. You know, when you were talking about the spectrum of people who are on the left and right and how people tend to assume they're pigeonholed, if you're a Trump supporter, you must be some kind of right-wing conservative. Or you don't care about the people dying in Syria. 
Right. I happen to have a friend who's been a friend of mine since fifth grade. I put him on the anarchist. He's certainly very educated in terms of history. I would not call him racist or any of those other nasty things. But he told me somewhere along the way that he's a Trump supporter, and I was aghast. But he said his reason for it was he views Trump as the person who's going to keep us out of war. And that was particularly had to do with the fact that Hillary was seemed to be very interested in going toe-to-toe with Putin and with Russia. And I think that that opposition probably is true, at least it was at that point. His objection was based on the fact that he viewed Hillary as the pro-military candidate, and that was a central issue for him. Now, I have differences of opinion about that, of course, but that was his reason. It wasn't because he was racist or any of the other nasty terms that we might apply to Donald Trump. Well, anybody who's ever run for president in a reasonably successful campaign has been pro-military. I remember when Obama got elected and I was writing a a fundraising letter and the guy who I worked with to write my fundraising letter had changed my language to say, now that we've elected the first peace president, I said, oh, hell no. Did you not listen to this man when he ran? He said he was going to take us out of Iraq, but put the troops in Afghanistan. That's not a peace president. You know, don't don't kid yourself. To me, I, that's not an issue that makes a scintilla of difference between the candidates as to whether they're pro-military. Is that equally true of Herbert Hoover? I mean, we've had two presidents who claimed to be Quaker. Richard Nixon was one. He was a Quaker. What do you mean claimed? Nixon And Nixon didn't claim to be Quaker. His mother was a Quaker. Wait, no. Nixon did claim to be Quaker on several occasions when it was convenient. I don't think he practiced as a Quaker, which is part of the issue there. Well, he was the right-wing branch of Quakers, too. But uh, Herbert Hoover was very much a Quaker. His whole family helped found the meeting, of which I'm a member. They came to my meeting. On a, not so much Herbert Hoover himself, but his wife and daughters came on a fairly regular basis. So, no, he was Quaker. And so what was his peace attitude? You know, it's I hate that people call Quakers part of the uh, traditional peace churches. First place, I hate the term traditional peace churches because when they people say it, they mean Quaker Mennonites and Brethren. And they're totally forgetting the Christadelphians, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses all of whom are really diehard about their refusal to participate in the military. We just, we don't even talk about them, and we don't admit that they're part of the traditional peace churches. The other reason I hate it is because there are a ton of people in those churches, not so much the Mennonites and Brethren, but even even there you can find veterans, and you can certainly find people, I remember after 9-11, people coming up to me in meetings saying, hey, we view you as the peace person, and I kept thinking, ugh. Please don't. But they kept saying, so I, I think we should go bomb Afghanistan. Does that make me a bad Quaker? And I'm like, yeah, no, it makes you honest. <laughs> you are who you are. And if, you know, if we can't accept that, then we're probably not very good at, at what we claim we're doing, which is finding that a God in everyone. But I, rather than talking about whether or not there's ever been a president who was a supporter of peace, because... Yeah, I don't think there was. I mean, the closest you come is probably Woodrow Wilson, and he wasn't particularly good at it either. I'd rather rather talk about the Koch brothers, because I think people have not seen what's going on as well as they might should have. 
And there was a book I read which absolutely changed my opinion about so many things and, in fact, caused me to change two lifelong principles, which is a lot, which is Dark Money by Janet Mayer, which is I reviewed for the Friends Journal. I'll I'll give my my, uh, disclosure there. But I also found it the scariest book I've ever read. It's a book that lays out the fact that starting in the mid-60s, there was a conscientious and deliberate and clear and planned decision on how to move our country away from the civil rights movement, away from more freedoms and more equality to a system where anarchy, and that's what it is. In fact, one of the things I found in, in the book was a discussion of the first libertarian convention where they rejected the word anarchy because that was connected with terrorists, which is an admission that that's what they are, is that they're anarchists. And they're anarchists not because they understand better than those those guys who wear, you know, the little black hoods and go around setting fires and trash cans that you see at many demonstrations. They understand that what happens when you have an extremely weak government is that the wealthy rule. They don't need to be president if the government is weak. They can get away with pretty much anything if they're rich enough and there's a weak government. The government has no power against them. And I think that's a really scary concept. So I no longer use the word libertarian without saying libertarian anarchist. I have, after an entire lifetime of being willing to sign anybody onto a ballot, because I believe the democratic system ultimately does work, and I still believe that, But I'm no longer willing to sign a libertarian anarchist onto a ballot because I think they're treasonous. I think they are destructive of our country in a basic and fundamental way. And I think that they are the people who made it possible for the current revolution, which many people view well to happen, but which put other people into fear. It's that desire to strip the government They are the ones who created the concept that big government was bad. You didn't hear big government was bad during Roosevelt's term, you know? But now it's on everybody's lips, from the right to the left. And the people on the left better think about where that came from. Where did their distrust of Hillary come from? Where did the distrust of corporations come from? It isn't just from, you know, Lynn Staunton. (laughs) <laughs> Do you mean we should trust corporations? I'm kind of, I'm curious about your viewpoint. Corporations are nothing. They are corporations. All corporations are is a form of acting. So why should you Okay, you don't want to trust corporations and don't trust Friends Committee on National Legislation. It's a corporation. Actually, the thing I would refer to is the Princeton study about democracy and the loss of it, how we've really transitioned to an oligarchy and that there was no correlation between what our legislature or National Congress decided. There was no correlation between that and what people wanted, as indicated by polls, but that there was a very strong correlation with what the corporations wanted. And again, who are the corporations? I mean, that's like a, that's a nonsense term. McNeil and Rick's PC, my law firm, is a corporation. My law firm didn't want that. So how, how can you say that corporations wanted something in particular? You're buying into this tar brush that allows the destruction of our democracy by using that big tar brush. Well, actually, what I believe the study correlated it to was the 
corporations' lobbying of Congress and their control of Congress. Now, uh, you know, AFSC, I don't know if it directly lobbies. I mean, certainly FCNL, Friends Committee on National Legislation, certainly lobbies. They both lobby. So so that's one of it. But if you consider the amalgam of corporations and what they want, there's a very strong correlation with what the majority of those who are stakeholders in terms of influencing Congress, what they want and what Congress decides. And FCNL is one of them. But if you consider the dollars represented there, the dollars represented by the corporations that have an opinion in a certain direction. I mean, and they they took the broad base of corporations into account. So your point isn't ignored, but that in fact corporations as a, and and mind you i i also know that unions are corporations right so their voice is in there too but what overall you take the opinion poll of corporations as represented by their dollars spent in lobbying that's what controls dollars that's a critical issue it's not the form it's not corporations that are the problem say more about that because you, we've had discussions it's a about correlation this. not causation the fact that you can correlate corporations and, a, you know, it, it's one of those great fallacies in research is you can look at a connection between the number of corporations that lobby and, and the results. But it's not the corporate form. It's not Chesapeake Oil, per se. It's not Georgia Pacific. But who's driving that? Georgia Pacific is driven by the Koch brothers, Right. And Bloomberg, it's not that the corporation Bloomberg, it's the people behind it. So we are absolutely falling into a very lovely distraction here. We're so busy beating up on corporations that we're not looking at the men behind the curtain. And that's where we need to be looking, is at the men behind the curtain. Now, having said that, I will say that I completely boycott Georgia Pacific Goods. And I encourage people to go online and look up what they are because they probably use them you know, angel soft toilet paper and such. But I do that because of the men behind Georgia Pacific, not because of Georgia Pacific. I certainly recognize that there can be corporations that were good. Ben & Jerry's is an example, and there's certainly a number of other ones that I would say are right-directed. So I, I, I take your point there. There was an article I read. It was in the one of the issues from the very end of 1915, put out by Western Friend, which is a Quaker publication out of California. In that article, it made reference to the fact that corporations are intended to be what we might call sociopathic or psychopathic in terms of their motivations. It's only about me. It's all about the only stakeholder being taken into account are the shareholders who get to make a profit out of that. And then the B-type corporation, which is kind of a new form of corporation, which explicitly defines the stakeholders, not as just the shareholders, but the customers and the public, general public and so on, so that those are supposed to be taken into account as part of the motivation. When you have, as your job definition, to make a profit for your shareholders, and that's it, that's a certain kind of myopia that tends to influence your moral climate. So there's that, I think, a valid point that, again, pointed out in this Friends and this issue of Western Friend, and I'll try and link to that article from org. I'm sure Friends Journal has had similar things in it. You've probably written the article for all I know. But when you say it's not corporations, 
I would just point out that corporations is just a mode of operation. It's an agglomeration of people. And that organizations can be defined in such way as to incline them in a certain direction. You know, the nonprofit or one of the big... uh Look at the the Mises Institute. It's a nonprofit organization promoting Austrian economics, which is basically libertarianism, anarchy. It's a nonprofit. It's not about profit. It has no shareholders. The Heritage Foundation. The point is, is that people are confusing the tool. It's like saying that a hammer that built something, a roadblock, that the problem is the hammer. Well, no, it's a hammer. A corporation's a corporation. A corporation can be run by people who are very concerned about the world around them, and those corporations exist. Or the corporation can be run by people who are only concerned about making their own personal profit. Or the corporation can be concerned about how the government's run, and that's why the whole corporation exists in the first place, either for the good or the ill. It is a tool. That's all it is. But as the saying goes, J.E., if the only tool you have is a hammer, a lot of the world looks like a nail. All you see are nails. That's right. And so the tool does influence our outcomes, it, not irretrievably, not without any exceptions, but it predisposes us in a certain direction. But, you know, I, my point is, is that we're being distracted by it. We're being distracted by the corporations rather than by the, the powers behind them. And it's the powers that pine them that frighten me, not the corporation. So we should be worried about Rupert Murdoch and we should be worried about the Koch brothers, but it's not specifically corporations. And I'm, you know, we should be worried about the people who have successfully, extremely successfully framed the conversation. And it's that framing of the conversation that has done us in. And this is one of the reasons that the narrowing of the ownership of our media seems so important to me and why I support community radio station. Absolutely. I can't think of an influence more pervasive than Fox News in terms of moving this country. Now, Mm -hmm. you would say it's the Koch brothers, perhaps, but I would say Rupert Murdoch has been at least as powerful as them. Oh, yeah. No, I'll throw him into the mix. I'm no fan. (laughs) But I do think that the driving force are the people who understand best, the people who support it. Reagan, look at Reagan. Uh, I'll tell you a side story. Here's the side story. I was getting a degree in conflict transformation. Don't ask. It was a Mennonite school. Nice, touchy feeling. I was supposed to do a timeline as, as a homework assignment. So I decided I would do this timeline, and I would show the correlation between the economy or the income gap or something and wars. And I did that, and I got nothing. <laughs> I mean, I had gone in, because you know, I'm clearly not a big fan of wars. I was going to prove that wars create an income gap or hurt the economy or help the economy or, or something. I got nothing. I started from World War One and I went forward and, you know, up, sometimes up, sometimes down, nothing. So then I started thinking, well, what else was going on? during these time periods when the income gap was huge and then when the the income gap was small and then when it started growing again. And you know what the correlation was with? Government regulation. Government regulation. The more regulation there was, the closer was the income gap. Less income gap if we have more regulation. And when the Reaganomics came in and started ticking away and knocking out the, the big government 
guess what happened? We started getting a bigger and bigger income gap because nobody was watching the fox in the hen house. In fact, they were saying, come on over here, fox. We think you have a right to be in the hen house. And so we ended up with the huge recession in 2008. And only one person who had been inviting the, the fox in stood up and said, gosh, I was wrong. And it got very little press. And it's a shame. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Bernanke, but he's the only one who stood up and said, perhaps unfettered capitalism isn't a good idea. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> listened to him. And so we have people on the left and the right saying big government is a bad thing. But when you actually look, and I, I'm a business owner. I mean, I'm the one that for myself and also some of my clients, I spend a lot of time filing this form and that form and the other form. I totally get not wanting to file 82 forms for an organization that makes an income of you know $10,000 a year. Trust me, I really get that. But having said that, I also now am quite clear that it is this destruction of the government keeping the fox out of the hen house, this destruction of regulation, this destruction of oversight that has allowed us to get into the situation where we have very wealthy people walking around claiming that they're there for the common man. And they're just as much there for the common man as the railroad barons and the steel barons were. I'm for you as long as you will work for me and do exactly what I say and I will give you money. It was this attitude, among others, has pushed us into an economy where we say, oh, it should be charities taking care of the poor people. And a lot of millennials buy into that because they think, well, nobody's taking care of the poor people. We should be. And I, I salute them for doing that. But what they don't get is that it should be a community effort, not a charity effort to take care of all of our people. And that destruction of our country has been very thorough, very calculated since 1964 and a huge success. And the people on the left have unknowingly bought in. It certainly contributed to it. Very good points, J.E. Actually, just yesterday, I was having a conversation with a friend. I guess I would say she's certainly more conservative in her outlook, maybe libertarian in her outlook. And I just got back from Kenya. You know, I was there for three weeks, and I experienced what a weak and corrupt government does, uh, just the roads and the lack of support. And, yeah, schools do have to be created by individuals, and the government may participate into it. So I was talking to her, and I said a phrase to her. I said, you know, having had those three weeks in Kenya, I get back here. I certainly am thankful for the regulation that we have in the United States. And her eyes got big, like, what? You're thankful for regulation? And I said, yes. What do you think keeps our houses safe and warm and our roads running and our schools of certain standards? And we can drink water out of our tap because theoretically, if we don't live in, if we don't live in Flint, we're going to have protection by the government. And so on. I go down this line of regulations. And she says, oh, well, yeah, well, that, yeah, well, yeah. And pretty soon she says, well, maybe I've been thinking about regulations a little bit wrong. And she says, certainly in a lot of areas that maybe they do make sense. Gee, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, and we buy into it. And uh, I will tell you where the, the cutting edges on that is going to be. There is a current attempt to change the name the, after we, they successfully changed private school to independent school, which and parochial schools, private and parochial schools are now independent schools, which sounds so much better. There's a push to change public schools to government schools. Oh, 
Okay. Watch for it, because that's going to be another attempt to force away free public education, the great equalizer. Even if it's not entirely successful, it, it comes closer than anything else we do. And that's on the horizon. Government schools. Doesn't that sound horrible, government schools? <laughs> Sounds like indoctrination, doesn't it, to you? Oh, God, we got to watch that big government interfering with the education of our children. Wow. So, you know, there's so much that we could talk about, J.E., and we'll have to get together and talk some more. You've always got such provocative and, I think, well-substantiated points of view, both of them. Again, folks, we've been speaking with J.E. McNeil, former executive director of the Center on Conscience and War, a lawyer in Washington, D.C. I've had her on the program, I think, three times previously, so number four here, J.E., There's more you can listen to of uh, the opinions and insights of J.E. McNeil when you come to NordenSpiritRadio.org. Also on the site, I'm going to have a link to a Friends Journal review of the book Dark Money by Janet Mayer. As J.E.'s commented, it was transformative for her to read this, and certainly J.E.'s been exposing herself to a lot of news. So this is a very significant step. Read the review in Friends Journal, linked from org. I'm also going to have a link to Western Friend article about corporations for some further insights. You might want to follow up there. J.E., as always, you're doing good work in the world, and thanks for looking at things and finding truth. I more and more find myself inclined to be called a friend of the truth, that that's more important to me than being a friend of the left or the right or the government or the corporations or anything. Friends of the truth seems to me to be a highest calling, and thank you for furthering that pursuit. Well, I'm always happy to happy to talk with you as long as, as, long as you want to talk with me. Okay. so folks look for those links on northernspiritradio.org thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistant with today's program and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action the theme music for this program is Turning of the World performed by Sarah Thompson this Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio you can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.